Boy, Tales of Childhood by Roald Dahl. An autobiography is a book a person writes about his own life, and it is usually full of all sorts of boring details. This is not an autobiography. I would never write a history of myself. On the other hand, throughout my young days at school and just afterwards, a number of things happened to me that I have never forgotten. None of these things is important, but each of them made such a tremendous impression on me that I have never been able to get them out of my mind. Each of them, even after a lapse of 50 and sometimes 60 years, has remained seared on my memory. I didn't have to search for any of them. All I had to do was skim them off the top of my consciousness and write them down. Some are funny, some are painful, some are unpleasant. I suppose that is why I have always remembered them so vividly. All are true. Starting point. Mama, Papa and Mama. My father, Harold Dahl, was a Norwegian who came from a small town near Oslo, near Sarpsborg. His own father, my grandfather, was a fairly prosperous merchant who owned a, a store in Sarpsborg and traded in just about everything from cheese to chicken wire. I am writing these words in 1984, but this grandfather of mine was born, believe it or not, in 1820, shortly after Wellington had defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. If my grandfather had been alive today, he would have been 164 years old. My father would have been 121. Both my father and my grandfather were late starters, so far as children were concerned. When my father was 14, which is still more than 100 years ago, he was up on the roof of the family house replacing some loose tiles when he slipped and fell. He broke his left arm below the elbow. Somebody ran to fetch the doctor, and half an hour later this gentleman made a majestic and drunken arrival in his horse-drawn buggy. He was so drunk that he mistook the fractured elbow for a dislocated shoulder. We'll soon put this back into place, he cried out, and two men were called off the street to help with the pulling. They were instructed to hold my father by the waist while the doctor grabbed him by the wrist of the broken arm and shouted, Pull, men, pull! Pull as hard as you can! The pain must have been excruciating. The victim screamed and his mother, who was watching the performance in horror, shouted, Stop! But by then, the pullers had done so much damage that a splinter of bone was sticking out through the skin of the forearm. This was in 1877, and orthopedic surgery was not what it is today. So they simply amputated the arm at the elbow, and for the rest of his life, my father had to manage with one arm. Fortunately, it was the left arm that he lost, and gradually, over the years, he taught himself to do more or less anything he wanted with just the four fingers and thumb of his right hand. He could tie a shoelace as quickly as you or me, and for cutting up the food on his plate, he sharpened the bottom edge of a fork so that it served as both knife and fork all in one. He kept this ingenious instrument in a slim leather case and carried it in his pocket wherever he went. The loss of an arm, he used to say, cost him only one serious inconvenience. He found it impossible to cut the top off a boiled egg. My father was a year or so older than his brother Oscar, but they were exceptionally close, and soon after they left school, they went for a long walk together to plan their future. They decided that a small town like Sarpsborg and a small country like Norway was no place in which to make a fortune. So what they must do, they agreed, was go away to one of the big countries, either to England or France, where opportunities to make good would be boundless. Their own father, an amiable giant nearly seven foot tall, lacked the drive and ambition of his sons, and he refused to support this tomfool idea. When he forbade them to go, they ran away from home, and somehow or other the two of them managed to work their way to France on a cargo ship. From Calais they went to Paris, and in Paris they agreed to separate, because each of them wished to be independent of the other. Uncle Oscar, for some reason, headed west for La Rochelle on the Atlantic coast, while my father remained in Paris for the time being. 
the story of how these two brothers each started a totally separate business in different countries and how each of them made a fortune is interesting, but there is no time to tell it here, except for in the briefest manner. Take my uncle Oscar first. La Rochelle was then, and still is, a fishing port. By the time he was 40, he had become the wealthiest man in town. He owned a fleet of trawlers called Pêcheurs d'Atlantique and a large canning factory to can the sardines his trawlers brought in. He acquired a wife from a good family and a magnificent townhouse as well as a large chateau in the country. He became a collector of Louis XV furniture, good pictures and rare books, and all these beautiful things together with the two properties are still in the family. I have not seen the chateau in the country, but I was at the La Rochelle house a couple of years ago, and it is really something. The furniture alone should be in a museum. While Uncle Oscar was bustling around in La Rochelle, his one-armed brother, Harold, my own father, Part 1 continued. He had met in Paris another young Norwegian called Anson, and the two of them now decided to form a partnership and become shipbrokers. A shipbroker is a person who supplies a ship with everything it needs when it comes into port. Fuel and food, ropes and paint, soap and towels, hammers and nails, and thousands of other tiddly little items. A shipbroker is a kind of enormous shopkeeper for ships, and by far the most important item he supplies to them is the fuel on which the ship's engines run. In those days, fuel meant only one thing. It meant coal. There were no oil-burning motor ships on the high seas at the time. All the ships were steamships, and these old steamers would take on hundreds and often thousands of tons of coal in one go. To the shipbrokers, coal was black gold. My father and his newfound friend, Mr. Anson, understood all this very well. It made sense, they told each other, to set up their shipbroking business in one of the great coaling ports of Europe. Which was it to be? The answer was simple. The greatest coaling port in the world at that time was Cardiff in South Wales, so off to Cardiff they went these two ambitious young men carrying with them little or no luggage. But my father had something more delightful than luggage. He had a wife, a young French girl called Marie, whom he had recently married in Paris. In Cardiff, the shipbroking firm of Anson and Dahl was set up and a single room in, in Butte Street was rented as an office. From then on, we have what sounds like one of the most exaggerated fairy stories of success. But in reality, it was the result of tremendous hard and brainy work by those two friends. Very soon, Anson and Dahl had more business than the partners could handle alone. Larger office space was acquired and more staff were engaged. The real money then began rolling in. Within a few years, my father was able to buy a fine house in the village of Landaff, just outside Cardiff, and there his wife Marie bore him two children, a girl and a boy. But tragically, she died after giving birth to the second child. When the shock and sorrow of her death had begun to subside a little, my father suddenly realized that his two small children ought, at the very least, to have a stepmother to care for them. What is more, he felt terribly lonely. It was quite obvious that he must try to find another, himself another wife, but this was easier said than done for a Norwegian living in South Wales who didn't know very many people. So he decided to take a holiday and travel back to his own country, Norway, and who knows, he might, if he was lucky, find himself a lovely new bride in his own country. Over in Norway during the summer of 1911, while taking a trip in a small coastal steamer in the Oslo Fjord, he met a young lady called Sophie Magdalene Hesselberg. Being a fellow who knew a good thing when he saw one, he proposed to her within a week and married her soon after that. Harold Dahl took his Norwegian wife on a honeymoon in Paris and after that back to the house in Landaff. The two of them were deeply in love and blissfully happy, and during the next six years she bore him four children. 
a girl, another girl, a boy, me, and a third girl. There were now six children in the family, two by my father's first wife and four by his second. A larger and grander house was needed and the money was there to buy it. So in 1918, when I was two, we all moved into an imposing country mansion beside the village of Radar, about eight miles west of Cardiff. I remember it as a mighty house with turrets on the roof and with the majestic lawns and terraces all around it. There were many acres of farm and woodland and a number of cottages for the staff. Very soon the meadows were full of milking cows and styes were full of pigs and chicken run was full of chickens. There were massive were several massive shire horses for pulling the plows and the hay wagons, and there was a plowman and a cowman and a couple of gardeners and all manner of servants in the house itself. Like his brother Oscar in La Rochelle, Harold Dahl had made it in no uncertain manner. But what interests me most about all of these two brothers, Harold and Oscar, is this. Although they came from a simple, unsophisticated, small-town family, both of them, quite independently of one another, developed a powerful interest in beautiful things. As soon as they could afford it, they began to fill their houses with lovely paintings and fine furniture. In addition to that, my father became an expert gardener and, above all, a collector of alpine plants. My mother used to tell me how the two of them would go on expeditions up into the mountains of Norway and how he would frighten her to death by climbing one-handed up steep cliff faces to reach small alpine plants growing high up on some rocky ledge. He was also an accomplished woodcarver, and most of the mirror frames in the house were his own work. So indeed was the entire mantelpiece around the fireplace in the living room, a splendid design of fruit and foliage and intertwining branches carved in oak. He was a tremendous diary writer. I still have one of his many notebooks from the Great War of 1914 to 18. Every single day during those five year war years, he would write several pages of comment and observation about the events of the time. He wrote with a pen, and although no, although Norwegian boy, part three, he wrote with a pen, and although Norwegian was his mother tongue, he always wrote his diaries in perfect English. He harbored a curious theory about how to develop a sense of beauty in the minds of his children. Every time my mother became pregnant, he would wait until the last three months of her pregnancy, and then he would announce to her that the glorious walks must begin. These glorious walks consisted of him taking her to places of great beauty in the countryside and walking with her for about an hour each day so that she could absorb the splendor of the surroundings. His theory was that if the eye of a pregnant woman was constantly observing the beauty of nature, this beauty would somehow become transmitted to the mind of the unborn baby within her womb, and that baby would grow up to be a lover of beautiful things. This was the treatment that all of his children received before they were born. Kindergarten, 1922-23, age 6-7. In 1920, when I was still only three, my mother's eldest child, my own sister Astri, died from appendicitis. She was seven years old when she died, which was also the age of my eldest, my own eldest daughter Olivia when she died from measles 42 years later. Astri was far and away my father's favorite. He adored her beyond measure, and her sudden death left him literally speechless for days afterwards. He was so overwhelmed with grief that when he himself went down with pneumonia a month or so afterwards, he did not much care whether he lived or died. If they had had penicillin in those days, neither appendicitis nor pneumonia would have been so much of a threat, but with no penicillin or any other magical antibiotic cures, pneumonia in particular was a very dangerous illness indeed. The pneumonia patient on about the fourth or fifth day would invariably reach what was known as the crisis. The temperature soared and the pulse became rapid. The patient had to fight to survive. My father refused to fight. 
He was thinking, I am quite sure, of his beloved daughter, and he was wanting to join her in heaven. So he died. He was 57 years old. My mother had now lost a daughter and a husband all in the space of a few weeks. Heaven knows what it must have felt like to be hit with a double catastrophe like this. Here she was, a young Norwegian in a foreign land, suddenly having to face all alone the very gravest problems and responsibilities. She had five children to look after, three of her own and two by her husband's first wife. And to make matters worse, she herself was expecting another baby in two months' time. A less courageous woman would almost certainly have sold the house and packed her bags and headed straight back to Norway with the children. Over there in her own country, she had her mother and father willing and waiting to help her, as well as her two unmarried sisters. But she refused to take the easy way out. Her husband had always stated most emphatically that he wished all his children to be educated in English schools. They were the best in the world, he used to say, better by far than the Norwegian ones, better even than the Welsh ones, despite the fact that he lived in Wales and had his business there. He maintained that there was some kind of magic about English schooling and that the education it provided had caused the inhabitants of a small island to become a great nation and a great empire and to produce the world's greatest literature. No child of mine, he kept saying, is going to school anywhere else but in England. My mother was determined to carry out the wishes of her dead husband. To accomplish this, she would have to move house from Wales to England, but she wasn't ready for that yet. She must stay here in Wales for a while longer, where she knew people who could help her and advise her, especially her husband's great friend and partner, Mr. Anderson. But even if she wasn't leaving Wales quite yet, it was essential that she move to a smaller and more manageable house. She had enough children to look after without having to bother about a farm as well. So as soon as her fifth child, another daughter, was born, she sold the big house and moved to a smaller one a few miles away in Landaff. It was called Cumberland Lodge, and it was nothing more than a pleasant, medium-sized suburban villa. So it was in Landaff two years later, when I was six years old, that I went to my first school. The school was a kindergarten run by two sisters, Mrs. Corfield and Miss Tucker, and it was called Elm Tree House. It is astonishing how little one remembers about one's life before the age of seven or eight. I can tell you all sorts of things that happened to me from eight onwards, but only a very few before that. I went for a whole year to Elm Tree House, but I cannot even remember what my classroom looked like, nor can I picture the faces of Mrs. Corfield or Miss Tucker, although I am sure they were sweet and smiling. I do have a blurred memory of sitting on the stairs and trying over and over again to tie one of my shoelaces, but that is all that comes back to me at this distance of school itself. On the other hand, I can remember very clearly the journeys I made to and from the school because they were so tremendously exciting. Great excitement is probably the only thing that really interests a six-year-old boy, and it sticks in his mind. In my case, the excitement centered around my new tricycle. I rode to school on it every day with my eldest sister riding on hers. No grown-ups came with us, and I can remember oh so vividly how the two of us used to go racing at enormous tricycle speeds up or down the middle of the road, and then, most glorious of all, when we came to a corner, we would lean to one side and take it on two wheels. All this, you must realize, was in the good old days when the sight of a motor car on the street was an event, and it was quite safe for tiny children to go tricycling and whooping their way to school in the center of the highway. So much then, from my memories of kindergarten 62 years ago, it's not much, but it's all there is left. Landaff Cathedral School, 1923-25, to 25, age 7 through 9. The Bicycle and the Sweet Shop. When I was seven, my mother decided I should leave kindergarten and go to a proper boys' school. By good fortune, there existed a well-known preparatory school for boys about a mile from our house. It was called Landaff Cathedral School, and it stood right under the shadow of Landaff Cathedral. 
Like the cathedral, the school is still there and still flourishing. But here again, I can remember very little about the two years I attended Landaff Cathedral School. Between the age of seven and nine, only two moments remain clearly in my mind. The first lasted not more than five seconds, but I will never forget it. It was my first term and I was walking home alone across the village green after school when suddenly one of the senior 12-year-old boys came riding full speed down the road on his bicycle about 20 yards away from me. The road was on a hill and the boy was going down the slope and as he flashed by, he started backpedaling very quickly so that the freewheeling mechanism on his bike made a loud whirring sound. At the same time, he took his hands off the handlebars and folded them casually around his chest. I stopped dead and stared after him. How wonderful he was, how swift and brave and graceful in his long trousers with bicycle clips around them and his scarlet school cap at a jaunty angle on his head. One day, I told myself, one glorious day, I will have a bike like that and I will wear long trousers with bicycle clips and my school cap will sit jaunty on my head and I will go whizzing down the hill, pedaling backwards with no hands on the handlebars. I promise you that if somebody had caught me by the shoulder at that moment and said to me, what is your greatest wish in life, little boy? What is your absolute ambition? To be a doctor, a fine musician, a painter, a writer, or the Lord Chancellor? I would have answered without hesitation that my only ambition, my hope, my longing was to have a bike like that and go whizzing down the hills with no hands on the handlebars. It would be fabulous. It made me tremble just to think about it. My second and only other memory of Landoff Cathedral School is extremely bizarre. It happened a little over a year later, when I was just nine. By then, I had some friends, and when I walked to school in the mornings, I would start out alone, but would pick up four boys, other boys of my own age along the way. After school was over, the same four boys and I would set out together across the village green and through the village itself, heading for home. On the way to school and on the way back, we always passed the sweet shop. No, we didn't. We never passed it. We always stopped. We lingered outside its sm rather small window, gazing in at the big glass jars full of bullseyes and old-fashioned humbugs and strawberry bonbons and glacier mints and acid drops and pear drops and lemon drops and all the rest of them. Each of us received sixpence a week for pocket money, and whenever there was any money in our pockets, we would all troop in together to buy a penny worth of this or that. My own favorites were sherbet suckers and licorice bootlaces. One of the other boys, whose name was Thwaites, told me I should never eat licorice bootlaces. Thwaites, father, who was a doctor, had said they were made from rat's blood. The father had given his young son a lecture about licorice bootlaces when he had caught him eating one in bed. Every rat catcher in the country, the father had said, takes his rats to the licorice bootlace factory, and the manager pays tuppence for each rat. Many a rat catcher has become a millionaire by selling his dead rats to the factory. But how do they turn the rats into licorice? The young Thwaites had asked his father. They wait until they've got 10,000 rats, the father had answered. Then they dump them all into the huge shiny steel cauldron and boil them up for several hours. Two men stir the bubbling cauldron with the long poles, and in the end they have a thick, steaming rat stew. After that, a cruncher is lowered into the cauldron to crunch the bones, and what's left is a pulpy substance called rat mash. Yes, but how do they turn that into licorice bootlaces, Daddy? The young Thwaites had asked. And this question, according to Thwaites, had caused his father to pause and think for a few moments before he answered it. At last, he had said, the two men who were doing the stirring with the long poles now put on their Wellington boots and climbed into the cauldron and shoveled the hot rat mash out onto a concrete floor. Then they run a steamroller over it several times to flatten it out. What is left looks rather like a gigantic black pancake. 
and all they have to do after that is to wait for it to cool and to harden so they can cut it up into strips to make the boot laces. Don't ever eat them, the father had said. If you do, you'll get rat-titus. What is rat-titus, Daddy? Young Thwaites had asked. All the rats and the rat catchers cats are poisoned with rat poison, the father had said. It's the rat poison that gives you the rat-titus. Boy, part six. The bicycle and the sweet shop continued. Yes, but what happens to you when you catch it? Young Thwaites had asked. Your teeth become very sharp and pointed, the father had answered, and a short stumpy tail rose out of your back just above your bottom. There is no cure for rat-titus. I ought to know. I'm a doctor. We all enjoyed Thwaites' story, and we made him tell it to us many times on our walks to and from school. But it didn't stop any of us, except Thwaites, from buying licorice bootlaces. At two for a penny, they were the best value in the shop. A bootlace, in case you haven't had the pleasure of handling one, is not round. It's like a flat black tape about half an inch wide. You buy it rolled up in a coil, and in those days it used to be so long that when you unrolled it and held it one end at arm's length above your head, the other end touched the ground. Sherbert suckers were also to a penny. Each sucker consisted of a yellow cardboard tube filled with sherbet powder, and there was a hollow licorice straw sticking out of it. Rat's blood again, young Thwaites would warn us, pointing at the licorice straw. You sucked the sherbet up through the straw, and when it was finished, you ate the licorice. They were delicious, those sherbet suckers. The sherbet fizzed in your mouth, and if you knew how to do it, you could make white froth come out of your nostrils and pretend you were throwing a fit. Gobstoppers costing a penny each were enormous hard round balls the size of small tomatoes. One gobstopper would provide a, about an hour's worth of non-stop sucking, and if you took it out of your mouth and inspected it every five minutes or so, you would find it had changed color. There was something fascinating about the way it went from pink to blue to green to yellow. We used to wonder how in the world the gobstopper factory managed to achieve this magic. How does it happen? We would ask each other. How can they make it keep changing color? It's your spit that does it, young Thwaites proclaimed. As the son of a doctor, he considered himself to be an authority in all things that have to do with the body. He could tell us about scabs and when they were ready to be picked off. He knew why a black eye was blue and why blood was red. It's your spit that makes a gobstopper change color, he kept insisting. When we asked him to elaborate on this theory, he answered, You wouldn't understand it if I did tell you. Pear drops were exciting because they were a dangerous taste. They smelled of nail varnish and they froze the back of your throat. All of us were warned against eating them, and the result was that we ate them more than ever. Then there was a hard brown lozenge called the tonsil tickler. The tonsil tickler tasted and smelled very strongly of chloroform. We had not the slightest doubt that these things were saturated in the dreaded anesthetic, which, as Thwaites had many times pointed out to us, could put you to sleep for hours at a stretch. If my father has to saw off somebody's leg, he said, he pours chloroform onto a pad and the person sniffs it and goes to sleep, and my father saws his leg off without him even feeling it. But why do they put it in his sweets and sell them to us? We asked him. He might think a question like this would have baffled Thwaites, but Thwaites was never baffled. My father says tonsil ticklers were invented for dangerous prisoners in jail. They give them each, them one with each meal, and the chloroform makes them sleepy and stops them rioting. Yes, we said, but why sell them to children? It's a plot, Thwaites said, a grown-up plot to keep us quiet. The sweet shop in Landeff in the year 1923 was the very center of our lives. To us, it was what a bar is to a drunk, or a church is to a bishop. Without it, there would have been little to live for. But it had one terrible drawback, this sweet shop. The woman who owned it was a horror. 
We hated her, and we had good reason for doing so. Her name was Mrs. Pratchett. She was a small, skinny old hag with a mustache on her upper lip and a mouth as sour as a green gooseberry. She never smiled. She never welcomed us when we went in. And the only time she spoke when, were when she said things like, I'm watching you, so keep your thieving fingers off them chocolates. Or, I don't want you in here just to look around. Either you forks out or you gets out. But by far the most loathsome thing about Mrs. Pratchett was the filth that clung around her. Her apron was gray and greasy. Her blouse had bits of breakfast all over it, toast crumbs and tea stains and splotches of dried egg yolk. It was her hands, however, that disturbed us most. They were disgusting. They were black with dirt and grime. They looked as though they had been putting lumps of coal on fire all day long. Boy, part seven continued. And do not forget, please, that it was these very hands and fingers that she plunged into the sweet jars when we asked for a penny worth of treckle toffee or wine gums or nut clusters or whatever. There were, very, there were precious few health laws in those days, and nobody, least of all Mrs. Pratchett, ever thought of using a little shovel for getting out the sweets as they do today. The mere sight of her grimy right hand with its black fingernails digging an ounce of chocolate fudge out of a jar would have caused a starving tramp to go running from the shop. But not us. Sweets were our lifeblood. We would have put up with far worse than that to get them. So we simply stood and watched in sullen silence while this disgusting old woman stirred around inside the jars with her foul fingers. The other thing we hated Mrs. Pratchett for was her meanness. Unless you spent a whole sixpence all in one go, she wouldn't give you a bag. Instead, you got your sweets twisted up in a small piece of newspaper, which she tore off a pile of old, dirty daily mirrors lying on the counter. So you can well understand that we had it in for Mrs. Pratchett in a big way, but we didn't quite know what to do about it. Many schemes were put forward, but none of them was any good. None of them, that is, until suddenly, one memorable afternoon, we found the dead mouse.